0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from newsstand studios at Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Each week, I talk to the coolest culinary personalities around, the folks shaping and shaking up the food scene. For today's show, we are revisiting our number one episode of 2022. It's my interview with Claire Saffitz. YouTube star, best-selling author, and one of the most beloved bakers around. Claire's first cookbook, Dessert Person, was published in 2020 and became an instant classic. She followed it up late last year with What's for Dessert, Simple Recipes for Dessert People. Claire is funny and humble and incredibly talented, but as you're about to learn, it took her a little while to figure out her path in life. I think you'll be very inspired by Claire's story, so stay tuned. Are you in the world of food, drink, or hospitality and looking to build your professional network in the new year? Or maybe you just love food folks. You should become an official Cherry Bomb member. Memberships are $40 per year and include a listing in the Cherry Bomb membership directory for you and your business, access to virtual meetings and networking sessions, special giveaways, and more. Head to cherrybomb.com to start your annual membership now. Our first virtual networking session of the new year is taking place January 12th. And we would love to see you there. Let's check in with today's guest, Claire Saffitz. Welcome back to Radio Cherry Bomb.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. It's so good to see you. You too. I feel like I see you a lot. I mean, you're on the cover of the magazine right now, so I feel like (laughs) I see you on a daily basis, but it's very nice to see you in person.
1: You too. Thank you for having me. And I've not been in the studio, which is so cool.
0: Oh, good. Well, welcome to Rock Center. We love (laughs) recording here and our lobby just reopened. So one Rock Center, if any of you are walking through one Rockefeller, look for Newsstand Studios. We're right in there. Okay, let's jump right into this. You are working on your second cookbook and you are almost done.
1: I'm so close. I'm so close. I am like right in this stage where the like mental breakdown is imminent. I can feel it. I So I recently turned in the recipe manuscript. So like all of the recipes, table of contents, edited, in order, chapter openers, all of that. Which felt monumental and took me, everything takes me way longer than I think it's going to. That Um, is
0: monumental. Give yourself some credit.
1: I did. I I gave myself like a half of a day off because then (laughs) I had to turn right back around. Are there footnotes again? So there aren't footnotes. No footnotes No footnotes. Okay. But I have a version of them. I'm very excited about it. I felt like, so Dessert Person has footnotes, which we've talked about, but it's like a lot of toggling back and forth on the page. I mean, this book, I really was able to reflect on what I felt like worked about dessert person and then change things that I thought didn't work as well. So with the footnotes, I decided to change it up and I have little like indentation steps, little asides in the recipes in the body themselves that say like potential pitfalls or optional upgrades, those kinds of things. So it's calling it out in the recipe itself. And overall, these recipes are more streamlined, a little bit simpler, more approachable, Also like more classic in a lot of ways and cover a a wider range of dessert types and categories. So I felt like I didn't need the footnotes, but there is a little section at the bottom that says, can I dot, dot, dot? And that came out of all of the questions that people would ask me about the recipes in Dessert Person. Like, can I have the recipe? Can I make it gluten-free? Can I bake this in a different pan? All of those kinds of questions. It's like basically like an FAQ for each uh, That's recipe.
0: So many substitution questions.
1: Yes, yeah, so many, so yeah, many I sub see. questions. You, you can't
0: help but see that when you look at recipes online. Yes. That seems to be the thing people love. Okay, optional upgrade and potential pitfall. I mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that could apply to so many things in life, not just recipes.
1: Well, it's, the pitfalls is like, don't do this or like, be careful if this happens, you know, because I want to call those out. And it's like, you cannot put everything in a parenthetical in a recipe. That was another big thing. It's like, I'm trying to... I've really been thinking so much about the craft of recipe writing, having just edited 105 or whatever recipes and trying to think about the way that I use language and how do I want these recipes to read. And I want them to feel casual and like my voice is there, but also very precise. So I decided to like try to do less things in parentheses, because it's like, if it's important, just write it in the paragraph, you know? So these are like a lot of the things I've been thinking about.
0: So you are a student of cookbooks, which we'll get to later, but cookbooks over the centuries, not just like cookbooks over the past few years. Yes.
1: I love them. I mean, I really love like early modern cookbooks.
0: What period would that be?
1: Like the early 1700s. (laughs) Pretty much. She's not
0: talking the 70s, people. <laughs> 1700s. <laughs> right. Although I
1: do love cookbooks from the 1970s oh, yeah. also. Oh, I have a huge fascination with like community cookbooks, like spiral bound community cookbooks, which were a big point of inspiration actually for this book. My mom has several that I like loved growing up. She has, my parents lived in Cleveland for a while before I was born. My mom has a, a cookbook called. Friends of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, and it's called Box Lunch, but it's Bach the Composer. Like oh, me. that's clever. And then there's a second version that's called Bach for more. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I've always loved. They're Green clever cookbooks. back in Cleveland. Yeah, I'm great with the puns. <laughs> I mean, I love cookbooks of all kinds from community cookbooks to, you know, ones on in public domain on Google Docs that are hundreds of years old. Have you announced the title yet? I've not announced the title okay. yet because I don't. Know what it is yet? Oh, there's okay. like contenders. So right now, the thing that I'm finishing is what they call the front matter, like the introduction and the other little sections that go at the front of the book. And I'm hoping that through writing, because like I get ideas when I write, so I'm hoping that just something happens, like a little spark, where I I write something. And I'm like, that's it.
0: Dessert person's a tough one to follow up, title wise.
1: Yeah, well, to me, it's like Dessert Person is so much more than just the title of that book. Because it's like an identity, yeah, and lifestyle. It's a way a way of speaking for myself. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like that's who I am. That's how I go through life. I've wanted to incorporate that somehow into the second book. And I also feel like it's not a sequel at all. I mean, this is a standalone book, but I really feel like they complement each other and they kind of go together. So I want there to be a nod to that. I just don't know what it is yet.
0: We eagerly await the uh, announcement (laughs) of the title.
1: What would you say you learned about yourself working on the first book? Working on the first book, I really learned to trust my taste on the first one. I think that's where I really developed my own style, or I came to recognize what really what my style is. Because I spent so many years working in a magazine where it's sort of like, yes, you have ideas, but there is a story pitch and you're sort of fulfilling other editors' ideas, or what is sort of standard for like the season or the issue or something. And this was when I could really decide, like, no, I like this thing and I'm going to use it. And so I really, I think, solidified my like identity as a recipe developer in that book. I was like, however many years later, I think it came out one year ago, not that long ago. But you know, but I worked on the recipes for a long time. Mm-hmm. And when I see it, I still feel like those are ideas that I'm. Like, that's a good idea. Like, I, I really like that recipe. I, I really learned my recipe process, but also my creative process, mm-hmm. definitely. Great. Let's
0: jump ahead and talk about the Cherry Bomb cover. First off, thank you so much for being on the cover. It was it's so much fun shooting <laughs> you and all the cover girls.
1: Carrie, I told you this, I think, multiple times, but it was, like, the best day of my life. It was so fun. I don't, like, really do still photography shoots. I do like video shoots. This was a shoot unlike anything I'd experienced where there was someone doing my hair, someone doing my nails, someone doing my makeup. They were all so fun and nice. Then Jen, the photographer. It was just like people standing around telling you that you look amazing and that you're so incredible. It was the biggest confidence booster I have ever experienced. Like I seriously called my husband on the way out and I was like, this was so much fun. Like everyone (laughs) should be able to do this. So I loved it and was like, could not have enjoyed it more. So oh, thank you. <laughs> it, it was such
0: a great day for us too, and all of you got along so well, and everybody was so like excited to meet each other. Yeah, and...
1: that was. I mean, that was the other huge part of it was like the amazing company to be with these other bakers who I've admired and like followed their careers, and I felt super flattered and honored, and like a real career high point.
0: And Fanny Gerson brought donuts. She brought giant boxes uh, of donuts for all of us.
1: I housed, you have no idea how fast I ate that donut. I was done with that donut before I got to the first floor in the elevator
0: from the fourth (laughs) floor,
1: I think. It was so good.
0: And Victoria Granoff and the croquembouche. Okay, we have to talk about the croquembouche for a second because, so Victoria Granoff is a famous food stylist. She is legendary. She worked with the likes of Irving Penn back when he was alive. And we were so thrilled that she agreed to do the shoot and we were tossing around some ideas And we never really have complicated food on our covers. (laughs) It's fashion-y or -hmm. it's, you know, an ice cream sundae. You know, we've had great stuff, but we never attempted the kind of things that we did for this one. And so I said, I'm thinking about a croquembouche for Claire because it's just so festive and it's, you know, the end of the year. And she's like, okay. And doesn't even blink, right? And then day of the shoot, it's clear I have never made a croquembouche (laughs) because it was so hard. They're covered in caramel. And I mean, it was just crazy. And then um, I remember you get there and you're like, I can't believe you all made a croquembouche. Like, this is amazing. And then a few days later, I read your recipe all the way (laughs) through to the bottom. And you basically were like, God bless the people who even tried to attempt making a croquembouche.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Godspeed. And I was like, (laughs) oh, wow, maybe I should have read this before I asked Victoria.
1: (laughs) You know, like, I'm not surprised that Victoria didn't bat an eye. I mean, I worked with her like a couple of times when I was an editor at Bon Appetit and like she's a, such a master that it was like, I mean, not that anyone like wakes up and just whips up a croquembouche or whatever, but it looked beautiful. And the great thing about a croquembouche is, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like cream puffs covered in a very hard caramel and stacked in this big, crazy hollow ring. They are super solid once the caramel is hardened like you really could like take a baseball bat to it. I mean it, it would break but like it's very sturdy. So it's like I was like swinging that thing around and I hope Victoria wasn't like having a like a heart palpitation or anything but it made the shoot so fun and we had the rose petals and I loved the jumps that I was wearing this Karen Callahan like blue canvasy one. It was yeah, so yeah. great. Made me feel amazing.
0: I thought that was the spark of Victoria Granoff genius. The roses on the top and the rose petals. That was great. Yeah, so pretty.
1: And like very fun to play with because where do the hands go, you know, when someone's taking your picture?
0: Right, right. Well, thank you again. It was so much fun. And what also was fun was interviewing you for the cover story because I thought I kind of knew a lot about you and it turned out I really knew nothing (laughs) about you and what an interesting path you've had. And folks will... Hear what this path was over the next part of this interview. But I will confess that I just thought, okay, Claire's, you know, fabulous and successful. And she went to Harvard and probably had an easy path through life. It took you a while to find out what your true path and purpose was.
1: And I took a lot of inspiration from that. When I was newly out of college and had just moved to New York and no idea what I was doing, and I had like an internship, which then ended like not long after. Like, what am I going to do? I really meandered quite a bit. I temped for a while. I worked retail for a while. I really was like figuring things out. So I'm deeply, deeply sympathetic toward people at that stage in their life in the kind of early mid-20s or even later of like, I'm trying to figure this out. I was also someone that was used to like achieving and that felt like I wasn't achieving That was really the first time in my life that I started to pull away from this model of, like, goal setting and achieving that was a source of self-esteem or um, self-worth because I am worth more than just, you know, the goals that I achieve. So I actually think that was really important. It was important that I just, like, floundered for a little bit. But then I decided to go to culinary school because it was like, I got to do something. And the only thing I wanted to do for the years I lived in New York and was just bouncing around was cook. I maybe told you this during the interview, but my roommate used to come home and be like, oh, the good smells are coming from our apartment. (laughs) So that was all I wanted to do all the time. And I was really serious about it. And I knew that it was not a passing interest. I knew like this is something I find really fulfilling and sustaining. And I think I want to do something with it. So I decided I was like 24, 25. I applied to culinary school. Um, And initially I was going to stay in New York. Like I'm not a native New Yorker. I'm from the Midwest, but I really feel like it's my home. I love New York. So I was like, I'm going to stay here, but it was cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people ask me, should I go to culinary school? And I have a really hard time saying yes. And it worked for me, but it is insanely expensive. And I think it's really hard to go into debt at an early stage in your life, especially where the career path is so sort of, it could just take you in a lot of different directions and you don't have a guarantee. So I started looking elsewhere and actually my roommate had a distant, I think it was like an aunt or someone who worked in the food industry, but I went and talked to her and she was like, I don't know, like think about culinary school in France or something. And I was like, Oh, what a great idea. And I'd never been to France. Well, I once when I was a very little kid, my, my parents took me there, but never as an adult, Julie and Julia had recently come out. And so I had like a very, very romantic like a very American kind of notion of like moving to Paris. It was more affordable. I signed up for a program that was run, it was at a trade school run by the French Chamber of Commerce. It's basically a high school. It's like in France, that's the system where you sort of go like the lycée or you go into trade school at a maybe like 13 or 14 or something. So I went, into an international program with other people in their 20s and 30s from all over the world. And it was us and a bunch of French teenagers, and they never talked to us (laughs) for what I could pay just for tuition in New York. I could go and live in Paris and go to this school. And it also had um, an externship tied to it that was paid. So it felt like a smarter financial decision. And then I got to live in Paris, which was great. And I spoke not one word of French, but I figured it out. And I'm glad I didn't think too hard about it because I probably would have talked myself out of going. But I went and it was like the best year of my life.
0: Did you focus on pastry or baking?
1: So I signed up for cuisine, actually. Mm -hmm. There was a separate pastry program, but I decided to do cuisine because I felt like it was more sort of generalizable and marketable. But it also had a pastry component. So one day a week we did pastry, which is, of course, my favorite day. But I'm really glad that I did cuisine. I learned so much. That's what really got me super interested in cookbooks as historical texts, because I started asking the question of like, why is French cuisine so codified? I mean, you literally can like map it out in a spreadsheet of like, you know, hot appetizers, cold appetizers, sauces, hot sauces, cold sauces, cold emulsions, you know, mother sauces. Like, it's And those so, were your classes, right? Basically, like those were the units mm-hmm. that we followed. And it was like, there has to be, there's obviously a historical reason for this and I want to know what it is. So then I went to grad school and basically so tell studied us, that. Tell us what it is. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the professionalization of the craft and just also like a very French attitude toward like codification and classification. You Is it know? also
0: the brigade system in the kitchen? It just made it easier for certain people to do certain things, to put a dish together?
1: Yes, for sure. It was about like a division of labor as and like areas of the kitchen as well. A lot of what I studied was about the sort of exporting of French culture and food to other Western European countries and then, of course, to the U.S. And that, you know, for decades and decades and decades, fancy food was just French food. Um, So sort of looking at that evolution and also the evolution of the restaurant as a space and it's super fascinating. and, And I loved it.
0: Let's talk about this here in Paris, because, you know, I'm a Francophile and Paris is my favorite place. On Earth, and I haven't been there in years, and miss it terribly. Mm-hmm. It's funny when you think about culinary school in Paris. The one thing I have in my mind is the movie *Julie and Julia*, mm-hmm. and you know the teachers being kind of mean uh-huh. to Julia. Were your classes hard?
1: Oh, I thought they were so hard at the time. I thought they were so hard. It turns out they were not hard at all. Like my in <laughs> retrospect. They just made them seem hard because the chefs, it was kind of part of the culture of the place that they like yelled at us, which was funny. Like none of us really took it seriously. But certainly in France, culinary school is about training students to go be cooks and work up through the brigade system and be a chef. People use the term chef kind of loosely, but especially in France, like a chef is a title, is official position. And you are a manager, like you run the kitchen. So, you know, the chef is cooking, but also like doing people's schedules and, you know, payroll and those kinds of things. So uh, I was like, I'm not going to do that. I know that that's not what I want for myself. So I kind of took it all with a grain of salt, but like yelling about like, go faster. And I was like, I'll go faster, but like not really going to make be that important for me in my career. But it was actually like, it was important to have that experience. Um, so they were kind of mean, but like also kind of funny and like made fun of us what was the culinary school? It was called Ferrandi, like Ecole Grégoire Ferrandi um, in the 6th. I mean, it was in like the best, such a great area. And I made friends with all my classmates because we were all, you know, foreigners in in Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, the course was taught in English, just to clarify. The French chefs knew we might be placed in French kitchens. So they like spoke to us a lot in French. So people are always like, oh, you speak French. And I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, absolutely not. I can get by in French, but I speak restaurant French. Like I could like write and read a recipe in French. And I know when it's not that hard to tell when someone's yelling at you to hurry up in French in a kitchen. So. um. (laughs) And you did wind up
0: working in a restaurant kitchen in Paris.
1: Yes. Tell us
0: about that experience.
1: The program had a mandatory externship. And that was part of why I chose it was because I knew I didn't want to work in a restaurant as a career. I just knew that it was not a good fit for me. Explain that
0: for for people who think they might want to work in restaurants or yeah. do something food related but aren't sure
1: I don't function well under high pressure environments I'd like to take my time I like to be analytical I just don't thrive under pressure I totally get the personality that like loves that I just don't have it so I knew that that wasn't what I wanted for myself but I wanted a taste of it I almost just like wanted to confirm that I am right. This is not what I want to do. So I I had like a three or four month externship at the restaurant Spring, which is now closed um, in Paris. But the chef Daniel Rose has several other restaurants in Paris, but actually also now in New York.
0: Right. Le Cuckoo. Yeah. mm
1: -hmm. But that was a major gig to get.
0: For someone who who wasn't sure she wanted to work in restaurants, you got placed right in the thick of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, the school had certain restaurants that it worked with a lot. The term is stagiaire, like an an intern, which is an official position. So, like, I got paid. You know, I had a contract. And one
0: thing I should point out, because folks who are listening to this might be like, "Oh, of course, Claire got to intern at Spring, but you didn't know anybody back then."
1: Oh no, I didn't know. No, and it wasn't like it was. (laughs) It wasn't like
0: Claire of today, folks. This was Claire who didn't have a million friends in the food world. This was
1: like super stress ball, like type A. Just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it, you know? I know it sounds like it was competitive, but it was, I just remember like we had meetings with kind of like the head of our program and they would be like, where do you want to do your externship? And I picked Spring, A, because of their reputation and also to be completely forthright, it's because I knew we could speak English in the kitchen. Truth comes I was like out. a little terrified about the idea of going into like an all French kitchen, but it was also just like, I knew the kind of food that Daniel Rose made at Spring and really felt like that was- the right fit for me. But they were just like, okay. Like I think I was the only one that requested spring and they had a spot. So I was like, okay, just go. That's to spring. amazing. Yeah.
0: Tell us about the foods that you got to make and the stations you were on, because you got to work with beautiful ingredients and make oh beautiful God. food.
1: That was so I mean it was a brief period of just a few months, but so formative and important. And I think about it all the time. And I learned so much. And I think first and foremost what I learned is is integrity of ingredients. Just Daniel got the most exquisite produce. And we had butter and cream driven down from Normandy once or twice a week in these big blocks. And, you know, bread came from, I don't remember which bakery he used, um, you know, down the street, warm in big paper sacks. And so I worked there in the spring, which was a great time. And we would get just huge like flats, like big cardboard boxes. Of just the fattest green asparagus you've ever seen, and actually one of my jobs was to snap off—not to peel them, but to snap off the tiny triangular leaves around the stalks of the asparagus, so that they could basically be intact, but you wouldn't get the kind of more coarse, tough little spear, like I'm a little triangle. So I just would sit there in the prep kitchen in the basement with a little paring knife. I actually kind of loved it. This is—I remember it was something I—I I read a quote from Claudia Fleming in an article. When she was interviewed or a profile of hers where she said that she likes doing rote things. Like, I really relate. I like. I was like, I was happy. So there was an open kitchen where there were, you know, guests sitting around you. And I was so happy to just like be buried in the prep kitchen in the basement with the music on, you know, just doing my thing. But It's very um, meditative. I found it that way. I mean, I just found it like calming and kind of peaceful, especially when everything else was chaotic. But I did pastry there. So... There was a pastry chef, but she was leaving as I was coming in and so I kinda took over a lot of the prep that she was doing, but I would also sometimes jump on lunch service and then I would jump on dinner service. I worked sort of two stations, although it was really like one at a time, because I would first do the what Daniel called the aperitif, which was just a sort of little series of bites at the beginning of the meal. So it'd be like a fried oyster, there would be or a raw oyster or both. All sorts of little, like what most people would think of, like amuse-bouche or something.
0: Give us another example. just to...
1: Some cucumber jellies, but I think that was for the oyster. I mean, they were really good. I remember at the end of the night, I would like eat all the leftovers, which I did every night. Because I was also too stressed out and busy to eat during the day. So I would eat either leftovers or and or make myself a butter sandwich. And I would get in the little veilip home with my little butter sandwich. Wait, was
0: what like, was a butter sandwich? It was, just, just, what it sounds it was like. just
1: like the amazing bread that they had for the guests filled with the amazing butter two slices, and then I could eat it with one hand on my little bay (laughs) on my way home.
0: So bread and butter, a.k.a. a butter sandwich. Butter sandwich, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, and so then I would, like, you know, the aperitif is the first things all the guests get when they sit down. And then as the night would go on and they had two seatings, I would migrate over to dessert, which would be the last thing that people ate. And that was a similar structure. That course was also a series of smaller bites, like non-composed. I wasn't slicing a tart and putting it on a plate. I was just composing like small little bites of, of a number of different kind of pastry components. So like a little mini pavlova with these beautiful garget strawberries that we would have, you know, delivered a couple times a week. It could be like a little canal of ganache or something with a sprinkle on top. A lot of ice creams. We did a lot of ice creams. Like the most incredible Greek honey ice cream. He had this incredible chocolate sorbet that was vegan, but like was so creamy and delicious um, that people didn't even know. So lots of that. I mean, stuff really rooted in very classic French flavors, but also very kind of loosely interpreted, which I loved. I mean, I love that I wasn't having to like do complicated plating, you know, Uh, but everything was so beautiful.
0: I'm very sad that I didn't get to go to that restaurant ever. One
1: of the great things about
0: you being over there as a student is you also got to run around and explore Paris. Tell us about a few of the places you loved.
1: Yeah. So I didn't even think about this, but this morning when I was getting dressed and knowing that I was coming here, I just, I put on these boots that I'm wearing. Are these like super old, they're actually, it's a pair of Doc Martens, but these were my Paris shoes. Like on my days off, I would put these shoes on and I had like, it's so funny, I was thinking about this recently. I had one outfit because I would I was wearing like kitchen uniform every single day. But on my day off, I would have my Paris outfit, which was like, I thought it was very chic. It was like this like sweater and this like sort of trench coat looking and like jeans and these boots. Anyway, I really, I love these boots and they make me think of Paris every time I wear them. I would spend a lot of time with my, like the friends that I made in my program. And I was living in the Upper Marais, which was the most fantastic neighborhood, which I had no idea. I got very lucky that like this was just the apartment where I was matched for the school and it was so small and the pipes would freeze and it was a walk up, but it was like, I loved everything about it. There was a poilón, like little outpost in my neighborhood. So we'd go and like have a little tartine sandwiches. And I would go, I would often stop in there and try to time my visit to their warm apple tarts coming out of the oven. And to this day, like one of the top five things I've ever eaten is like a warm poilun, uh apple tart. It's just so good. There were some great, like, little bistros in the area. There was this, I think it was called Café des Musées is one of them in the Marais, um, where I remember I took my dad when he came to visit. And, like, my dad, a huge, huge lover of French food. We had, we had the best time. And then I hit up a lot of bakeries, for sure, which are like going to a museum because everything is, like, in under a cloche. It's just, like, on display, you know, and then you're, like, all have a ta ta and then come out with it in like, its little box and stuff, so... I felt like the best eating in Paris, I mean, it wasn't really a lot of restaurant eating, although I, I went to some of the more affordable spots, like Frenchie was really, that was sort of a, a it's still so popular, but like really kind of gaining huge popularity, Rose Bakery, a number of like expat places too. Bones was uh, was very new then. So it was nice to be tapped into the other cooks at spring and sort of talk about like, you know. I didn't know anyone, but it were like, oh, this person just opened up a restaurant or whatever. Go check that out. Do you think you'll ever live there again? You know, when I left, I was like, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm going to live here. It was a long time ago. So... Well, your life's been
0: a little bit of a whirlwind.
1: Yeah. I mean, now, like, I'm married and I feel like...
0: You own three cats. And
1: we have three cats a couple chickens. Like it's, I knew, I knew that as time went on. We need to talk about the chickens later. (laughs) I knew as time went on, it would get harder and harder, but I have not given up. It just might be like another, not in this period of my life, but maybe later. I mean, look, look, I mean, the dream is the Dory Greenspan life, you know.
0: That's the dream for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. You're (laughs) just reminding me, I need to write back to Dory about something, (laughs) but uh, no, Dory, Dory is the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: New right. York and, or U.S. and Paris.
1: Yeah. Exactly. She, she emailed me recently and was like, kisses from Paris. And I was just like, Dory, sounds so wonderful. She's
0: the best. <laughs> she really is. So you're in Paris. You decide you are going to come back and go to graduate school. So we do need to flag that you are someone who obviously loves school. And you told me a funny anecdote from when you were younger, your mother would actually have to tell you to stop doing homework and go
1: watch television or go outside. That's yes. true? That's true. And this is also something I've been thinking about recently because I've been so, I love television. I love it. And I've been so hard at work on my book that I haven't been watching it, but like, I miss it. Like I want it so bad. And I really think that that was formed in childhood. I was a very like tightly wound kid and very into like, I really liked rules and I really liked following rules and like doing what was expected of me, which meant like achieving in school. And so I'd like never watch TV. And now as an adult, it just makes me into an adult that like wants to watch TV all the time because it means it signifies to me. I like have psychologized this whole thing. It means to me like a freedom or a, a relaxing or something.
0: So Claire loves school. We've established that you're in Paris. You decide you're going to come back, but go to graduate school.
1: Yeah, I just I was applying for grad school while I was in my doing my culinary program. Because I still as a young adult, most of my life had been school, and I liked it and I was good at it and I was like I I should just probably like keep doing this. I also really loved the idea of of a lifelong pursuit of learning, which is I also realized like a very idealized way of looking at that. Um like my dad was a professor, and so I had that model a little bit. I applied to grad school. I applied to PhD programs. I, this is I shared this with you before. Um, I didn't get into any of them, and I got into the one master's program that I applied for, and I got a little bit of a scholarship. So I was like, okay, well, that was an easy. Did it decision. throw you that
0: you didn't get into the programs you wanted to get into? More of the no. long, the long and winding yeah. road of Claire Saffitz.
1: I think I was okay with it because I felt like I had a purpose at least. And I was a little bit used to rejection from like a couple of years of not being, uh, of just like wandering around New York being like, someone help me and give me a job. But I, I sort of was like, I don't know that I really wanted to go into a PhD program anyway. I just was like, maybe I think this is kind of what I should do. It was wonderful that I ended up going to a master's program because it was, in, so it was at McGill's in Canada. And that is a one-year program as opposed to the U.S. where it's usually two. And that was so perfect. Like the one year and then moving from Paris to Montreal was a neat transition. And I loved my program. I loved the professor that I worked with. Tell Um, us what you studied. Yeah, I worked with Professor Brian Cowan who did and does a lot of work around like the intellectual history of food in the early modern era. And I was interested in that period and wanted to work with someone who, you know, did stuff with food. And so I was in the history department and I got to just like read cookbooks as texts, which was so exciting and fun to me. And I still like love reading them. And as I said, like a lot of them are in the public domain. So you can go on to Google Books and look up, you know, a, a cookbook from 16, you know, 72. How do you
0: do that for folks who are listening to the show and they're like, I want to see one of these cookbooks. What do you have to search for On Google.
1: I think you have to know what you're looking for specifically, but if you Google cookbooks in the early modern era, you'll get all the titles. I mean, there were very famous ones. There were not that many. It was not like a a ubiquitous genre. And really, cookbooks started as like instruction manuals written by professional cooks who worked for like important noble families or royal families and wrote these books to like tell other professional cooks, how to do it, how to like run a a big fancy house and throw banquets and, you know, make certain recipes. So they're fascinating. It's like, you know, that's nothing like a cookbook that we know of today with all the steps written out. It'll say things like make a sweet crust, bake it in a low oven until this and, you know, on top with a stiff meringue or something like that. You know, it's like, it's, there's such an assumed knowledge because it's, it's for not for a wide audience. I love being able to, sort of find and pick up all of those little historical details and all of the the recipes. So, and they're just like super theatrical and like hilarious. There's, I remember this whole, I wrote a paper about this whole passage in a cookbook where it talks about stuffing live crows and live frogs into pies so that they can be burst out. Like when you take them out onto the banquet table Yikes. and then you like build a stag and fill it with claret wine and then you. An, you put an arrow through it so it looks like it's bleeding and the wine comes out. And then you just to fill eggs with rose water so the, the ladies can throw it. I mean, it was like a whole thing. That's, <laughs> That's fun. So. That's
0: more fun than the live birds in the Oh, pie. it was all
1: part of the same oh. <laughs> spread. So you could do all of it. Um, yes. Yeah, so I that was what I did in grad school. I was like, read stuff like eggs that. Eggs
0: filled with rose water. Okay. Do they blow out the... The egg part? Okay. Yes. I like that. Yeah. I could handle that. (laughs) Did you and Natasha, Natasha Pickowitz is also on one of the covers of the baking issue. Did you two know you had a Montreal moment in common?
1: We figured that out pretty early on. So I actually ended up interviewing her. I do not know what year it was, but it was several years ago when I was still up on Epitie and she came on the podcast. And that's when we like talked about it. So it's wonderful to share that connection. And I do see like, in her work, I see some of the, the little bits of Montreal in, in what she does, which is, and everything that she does is beautiful and so creative and like very Natasha, you know.
0: Yeah. It's funny though, you two definitely diverged. I mean, you went to this very classical French culinary school and she got her start at this kind of punk rock deli yeah. in Montreal.
1: Yeah. I mean, Montreal has such an interesting and varied food scene. And I think it's really cool that that's where Natasha started I think I could totally see how it has like informed her her approach to pastry at
0: some point you decide in your head that you've got all these different interests and maybe the answer is food media that's where they can all come together and flourish
1: right yeah so I was about halfway done with my program in grad school really liking it but also really missing cooking I'm cooking for people. I would like bake for my seminar classes and bring stuff into class. And I just decided at a certain point, I think I would rather be making food than reading and writing about it exclusively. So I started to think about, okay, like I also, I had sort of feelings about being in the quote unquote Academy and and feeling like if I'm going to write about food at I was just more interested in sort of a more, a broader audience and something that wasn't so, I want to say rigorous, I guess. So I started thinking about it, like, where, you know, is that possible? And then I literally remember being in my apartment in Montreal one day and being like, oh my God, like magazine! someone has to write a food magazine. Like there's a recipe, you know, like who, who makes that? it's so funny because you
0: never thought that before.
1: I never thought about that. I read Martha Stewart Living, like my whole childhood, but it truly like never occurred to me. But like people had to make that (laughs) magazine. And I think part of this is a commentary on like four-year colleges. It was like, do you want to go to law school or medical school, work in consulting or finance? We can help you. And other than that, it was like, you're on your own, you know. I had never really thought about media. Never really pinpointed this thing called food media. But then all of a sudden it was there. (laughs) I was like, oh, right. And that's when I was like, oh, this would be so perfect. And I love the idea of recipe development. And writing uh, recipes for popular audiences and I think I'll be good at it. Like I felt like I already was a recipe developer. That was what I would do in my free time during grad school was like, think about something I wanted to make and then research it and then start making it and make it again and tweak it. And so it came naturally, I think.
0: What was the first job you were hired to do at Bone App?
1: So I was hired as a, on like a two-month contract as a freelancer to recipe test. So, I mean, I think at this point, like a lot of people are familiar with the idea of a test kitchen, but it was a facility in the offices where the food editors cooked all of the recipes and tested them and they were tasted. once they were tasted and approved by all, it would go to meat. And I was the kind of last line of defense against errors and inconsistencies and and other issues. I'm really good at following directions. (laughs) So this was like a a role that I, that I took to very, very easily and, and with great enthusiasm. And then after two months they were like, okay, like, do you want to stay longer? And then I became permalance and then an assistant editor job opened up. So that was how I kind of slid my foot in the door at Bon Appetit. And I just really felt like I had this great opportunity and I'm going to work really hard because I really love this work.
0: And things were starting to gel. All the twists and turns of the past were starting to kind of make sense.
1: Yes. When was the first
0: time they asked you to do video?
1: The very, very first video I did was what what we would call back then a hands and pans video. So like you could not see. There was no personality or like face involved in this video. It was just like my hands doing things. And it was to make these pastry called Queen Amman, which was a um, Belinda Long recipe from her bakery in San Francisco. And... I just showed up. I had no idea I, was like, I could, like, make a swap, you had to prep your ingredients. I was just like, okay, I'm, like, doing this. No one told me. No one, like, was like here's what you should do. That was, like, kind of how, like, a lot of things happened there. It's like no one told me. I Sounds wasn't. like life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, we made it work, and actually, I think you can still see the video. Um, it turned out pretty well. I think I've seen some of those hands-only videos. Yeah, they're just, like, how-tos, you yeah. know, like, I'm going to show you how to make this thing. Um, and then eventually they became more like hosted style videos. So the real, I think, like first hosted video I did was a cookie decorating video. The approach went from more produced to less produced, which suited everyone, yeah. including me.
0: When did you start to enjoy video? Or maybe maybe you still um, don't.
1: <laughs> I enjoy it very much now. I mean, now I, I do video at home. I would say now. I would say within the last six months. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't enjoy video when I did it at Bon Appetit. I just really Really loved the crew. We had so much fun. It was like annoying when we had to shoot. It was like, but we're hanging out. The shoot is getting in the way of us, you know, schmoozing. So that was really just about the environment and the just how much fun the crew had together. I love them.
0: I found some of those videos stressful to watch because <laughs> your <laughs> projects were so bonkers that yeah, you would have to do.
1: They were kind of stressful to live through because I would wake up in the morning and be like, I don't know how I'm going to do this.
0: And it was clear you took the challenges really, really seriously.
1: Yes, that's the like I don't know how to not do my homework.
0: Now that all makes sense to me because I would watch those and I would be like, "Why is she putting herself through (laughs) this?" So you said you love it now. How big is your crew now?
1: The crew is three people, including you. No, four, including me. Okay, and it's so it's a cat. Oh, plus yeah, yeah, plus my our uh, our mascot. She's only recently stopped hissing at everyone on the crew. It's like been over a year. It's so it's very small, and we do it in my apartment.
0: I was just going to say, how do you fit three people plus you plus a cat in that tiny oh, kitchen? Oh, plus like all the
1: lights and stuff and all the equipment. It's very tight. I mean, I live in a one-bedroom apartment. So for the however many days they're there shooting, which could be four days or five days, we just like live on top of the equipment, which is fine. And Maya doesn't love it, but she deals. It's very fun. It is really just like hanging out with your friends and making something delicious. I love the crew. It's like two of them have kids and so it's like i love sending them home with stuff and then they come back the next day and they're like oh you know so and so loved the cake and you know the cookie not so much or something
0: your little critics
1: right (laughs) yes
0: how much prep work do you have to do because now we know also you don't wing anything
1: right i don't wing anything i make swaps and i try to always sort of make a call about like can we wait for this thing to cool or do we need another one you know because we don't want to be here all day so it's like a judgment a lot of times i prep dough the night before. I'll make an extra pie crust. Sometimes I'll just bake a version off so it's cooled. Do you the next do an day, entire run through? Yes. We just basically do it one time through. And, um, you know, I'm always, Oh, just one time through. So you yeah. don't do like a rehearsal nope, run through. Nope. Okay. Basically most of the recipes came, come from dessert person. The run through was like testing it, it for already. the book. Right. Yeah. Right. Although we've started to do more just like other recipes that I've kind of cobbled together. And those are the ones where I'm, I'm more nervous during those because it's like, we're doing this one time and I kind of haven't totally made it this way yet, but like, I think it'll be fine. And it, and it is fine. Because
0: they do seem very authentic. I don't feel like you've rehearsed it before.
1: Right. I'm fortunate and also glad... That what looks the most authentic is also the least amount of work for me. <laughs> it's like we make two episodes a day. We tape one in the morning and we have lunch and we do one in the oh, afternoon. You do? Okay. Yeah. So it's like we pretty much just run through and we have good editors and and Cal and Vinny who are on cameras, like are they always in, you know, in there getting the shot in the bowl so that with a close-up so that there's you know lots of things. It works out great. And you know, it's like I think it's it's on YouTube. I like the episodes that are like 15 minutes. Like we're not, you know, we're not making feature length films here. So keeping it kind of relatively short and sweet, I think, in in these nice little packages is is worked out really well. And
0: you attempt a wide variety of projects. I know the gingerbread one, that was not your favorite. (laughs) You've done chocolate chip cookie all the way. You did a croquembouche one, right?
1: Yeah, I did that episode with my brother-in-law. He ate the croquembouche when I was testing it. And was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever had. And he was like, I want to make one. But he'd never baked before. And I was like, oh, that would be funny if we did it together. <laughs> Skip to the end of that episode. You see what his looks like. He oh, really no. did a great job for having basically like never made anything in his life. And like, you know, he gave it to the neighbors. Um, I have to that confess was
0: when I asked Victoria to do it, I didn't think she would go all the way. Mm. I thought there was like an element of faking it that you could do that had involved maybe like Pins that you mm. stuck the cream puffs onto. <laughs>
1: oh, like a form? No, like she did it. Right. It's not on a form. I
0: fully thought we would do like semi fake. Right. Yeah.
1: I like. Yes, I, I've had people tell me you're really crazy that you don't do your croquembouche on a form, but yeah. I like how it yeah. always comes a little comes out a little wonky, but I kind of like so w- it.
0: When you see the one on the cover, folks, that is the real deal.
1: Yes, absolutely. No yes. food styling trickery. <laughs> We try to always do a variety and we try to think about, like, what do people want to see made? You know, so it's like a chocolate chip cookie for sure. You know, that's going to definitely be popular. But then also try to do stuff that's like a little weirder or a little unexpected. And it's super teaching focused. That's really the point. It's like I'm here to teach you how to make this thing if you want to make it and just make it feel accessible.
0: Is there a holy grail item you'd love to make on video?
1: Oh, um. There are definitely layer cakes that we have not done, mostly because I'm just like, that's too much work. There, I was just thinking about this cake the other day. There's a lemon, a preserved lemon meringue cake. So this was made with preserved lemon that you like blend with yogurt and it goes into the cake. And then you've split the layers. So you have like... So the salty preserved lemon. Yes. Is in, and it gives it that like minerally mm-hmm. bitterness, but also very lemony flavor, which is, I love. And it really offsets, you know, the sweetness... And then it's filled with lemon curd and covered in a meringue frosting and then torched. That is a project.
0: That we ha- we great. haven't done that. Yeah. So now you're on your own, essentially. Like you are your own business, your own business manager. How has the transition been going from working for a company to now working for yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, in general, very good. I love having that control and that autonomy. That's so important to me. I could not, I really cannot imagine going back and working at a big company again. I love routine. Like I loved showing up to an office every day.
0: Paid vacation.
1: Paid vacation. (laughs) Excellent healthcare, which like, let me tell you, it's rough out there. Um, so it's like, that's what you lose is dealing with all of those things yourself. And I have sort of like officially been on my own since middle of 2018, but I still feel like I am very much trying to organize and run and establish the business part of it. It's like, I don't know anything about business, you know? Do you have a business team? Um,
0: I know you have an agent.
1: Yes, I have an agent. I have like a number of people that help me I have, like an, an attorney <laughs> okay, and uh, and my book agent, David Black, who is like, you know, I probably talk to you like more than I talk to my own mother. He's like Yoda. Oh, yes. Thank God for David Black. And then like my, my husband, Harris, who's like entrepreneur and runs restaurants and does restaurant operations like helps me also. I have like fantastic accountants who I call all the time and I ask them questions and then they tell me your question doesn't make sense. And that's because I don't understand what I'm talking about or what I'm asking.
0: And I'm not implying that I think you need all these things. I'm just curious. Oh, I need. Oh, you do. I do. I do. Because I'm just curious. I know how much work goes into your videos and you produce them at a regular clip and your books are no small undertaking.
1: The central tension is I love doing everything myself. You know, I'm like so detail oriented. Like I just really like doing tasks. Like I just want to do everything myself, but it's impossible. So in the future, like I want to continue to write books and I want that to totally come from me. But you have to delegate. And yeah, delegating. We should, we
0: should never start a business together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we would die. Yeah. Oh my god. It's so hard. Delegating is probably the thing that I'm worst at and need to work on the most. Uh, as a one-person business, it's insane how many people you need to help you. You know, when
0: you didn't set out to be a business person, having to learn how to navigate the worlds of law and accounting and all those and taxes. Yeah. It's just dizzying.
1: Yeah. I love my accountants.
0: You know, before Cherry Bomb, I owned some restaurants and I did not know that before you do a single thing, you really need to make sure you have a great accountant. And I did not have a great accountant in the beginning and paid the price for it. And, If your accountant is a disorganized human being, run the (laughs) other way. Right. You really want someone who is like buttoned up.
1: Yes. You want someone who's going to bug you. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Totally. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, some heroes of yours and some folks you admire in the industry.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a long list. I really have a huge affinity for a lot of the pastry chefs that did a lot that worked especially in New York, in kind of like the 80s and 90s, like the Claudia Flemings and the Gail Gans and um, Emily Lucchetti. I just love that era of desserts. And actually like a lot of the, the new book that I'm trying to finish is kind of inspired by desserts of that era. And of course, Dory Greenspan, I feel, Dory has been very generous with me and we've, we've developed a nice sort of friendly relationship over the last couple of years, and and Claudia Fleming too. I mean, really, Carrie. Actually, like you're responsible for this because we first met at a like a, sort of talking together on a virtual jubilee event, and stayed in touch. And
0: that's right, jubilee 2.0. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And she also has been very generous with me, and and has been. I mean, it's not so much of like a, a mentor, but just a sort of like a sage kind of presence, you know, and I've followed her career forever and just such an admirer of everything she does. So yeah, I I love that, that period of like New York restaurants and the pastry chefs that really flourished, I think, during that time.
0: Best piece of advice you've ever gotten
1: or given? That's a hard one. There's a couple. Can I share a couple? Absolutely. Well, it's really like advice. I mean, it's probably came from my therapist, but like it's advice that I tell myself and it's like a lesson I learn over and over and over again, which is just like slow down Like so many things can be fixed if you just slow down because I, and I'm not, I'm not really liable to do that. Like I have to really tell myself. Is that kind of like the the clenched fist metaphor? If your fist is clenched so tightly because like you are trying so hard to like get something done or accomplish something or do something, it's like you actually need to do the opposite and like relax a little bit. Another great piece of advice a friend told me is, Never give somebody a story to tell about you, <laughs> 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 which <laughs> I think is pretty true. Um, that was like a very good, like an actual piece of advice.
0: My version uh, of that is: uh, don't do anything that's going to put you on the front of the New York Post on a slow news day.
1: <laughs> right, right. The, the, either the front of the New York Post or page six or anywhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> Please stay out of, stay out of the Post for sure. Yes.
0: <laughs> Time for the speed round, folks. Treasured cookbook, which I feel like we've asked you a hundred times.
1: Yes, but I have a new answer, which oh. is classic home desserts by Richard Sachs. Iconic.
0: Great. We'll look it up. A song that makes you smile.
1: Well, I, ha- I have to admit the first thing that popped into my head was Tom Petty, The Waiting, which is like perennially, I love Tom Petty and like that's always a favorite song. And then I, and then I thought about Lizzo. So.
0: <laughs> which song?
1: Well, I really, I like her, the, her newest song, Rumors, which is just like a fun anthem.
0: Favorite kitchen tool:
1: small offset spatula.
0: Footwear of choice in the kitchen—I know you have something very specific.
1: Yeah, I prefer Dansko clogs. My my go-to color. I have like such a variety that I really love.
0: Got a little rainbow of Dansko.
1: Yeah, but my favorite ones—I have like a shearling pair that are just really—they're very fluffy, and I, I love the way they look.
0: You talked about TV earlier. What are you streaming? Not oh, that you've had a lot of time. But.
1: No, I currently am streaming nothing because like by the time I can turn on the TV, like I'm so, I cannot pay attention to anything. Um, but recently I streamed, I watched Squid Game because I was just like, maybe for once in my life, I should try to watch something when other people are watching it and not like five years later and then try to talk about it. Um, I'm very excited to start Only Murders in the Building and that's been on my list. So once the book is done, that's my treat.
0: That's a cute one. Dream Travel Destination.
1: Oh, I am dying to do like a American Southwest road trip. I have not really been in that part of the country very much. And it just looks so, it's like staggeringly beautiful. And I would love to hit up so many of like the places in New Mexico and Arizona and West Texas. So um, I want to make that happen.
0: If you had to be trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? Wow.
1: Immediately I just thought about Padma because she's just like so soothing. <laughs> I feel like I would feel nurtured if I were with her. Yeah.
0: Good answer. She's so badass, Padma. I I'm, I'm she, sure she would
1: like figure everything yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> she, and she's
0: she's she's just brilliant. She's a good person to be trapped on a desert island with. Mm-hmm. When I was originally writing these questions I wrote desert island and caught my <laughs> typo, but I was like that would be the best Claire Saffords TV show ever. And I imagine something like Survivor meets the Great British Bake Off.
1: <laughs> but like, or could it just be instead of a competition, could it just be like, could we just be a bunch of people eating desserts like in a <laughs> of tropical you would say, locale? does it have to be a competition? <laughs> it
0: might have to be a competition. <laughs> Who would you want on that show?
1: I mean, immediately I would just want like every person on the Cherry Bomb cover, but then I wouldn't want to be in competition with any of them, which would be incredible to see. Yeah, I think
0: I would love to pitch that show, but my hunch is you would need so much sunscreen. It would make <laughs> oh, yes. a desert island show very oh difficult. Oh my god! I would produce. have
1: to wear sunglasses and a hat in every shot. So <laughs> I feel like that would not that would not work well. Oh yeah, I'm me and the sun. We do not get along.
0: <laughs> we'll figure out another twist on that one okay. when you're back on I the mean, show. It could be
1: like an island not not tropical. I don't know. Like Manhattan's an <laughs> island. I don't know. Manhattan is an <laughs> island.
0: <laughs> exactly. Okay. We're going to end on that. Claire, you're the best. Thank you for coming back on the show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Claire Saffitz. And thanks to you for making that interview our number one episode of the year. You can find the issue of Cherry Bomb's print magazine with Claire on the cover at cherrybomb.com. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Our theme song is by the band Tra La La. Thank you, Joseph Hazen, studio engineer for Newsstand Studios, and to our assistant producer, Jenna Sadu. And thanks to you for listening. You're the bomb.